Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right. Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you here. Bless you. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5, and we are dealing in a section, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, known as what? Actually, chapter 8 through 8. What's that? What's that passage known as? What is it? Oh, yes, the Beatitudes, but that's only part of it. But uh, what's the bigger portion called? Sermon on the Mount. Anybody remember... I said a few weeks ago how long it took to, if Jesus, if these are all the words that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which I'm not so sure it is. He may have said some other things, but this is what we have recorded. If these are all the words, anybody remember how long it would have taken? 15 minutes. Yes, you remember that because we have now been at this over nine hours, at least talking about the Sermon on the Mount and not just the Sermon on the Mount, but the Beatitudes, and we're not done yet. And so, yes, brevity would be good, conciseness, and to the pointness, I guess. Uh, so all of those would be really good. Um, yeah. So we're, uh, we've been working at this for quite a while, but, of course, Jesus was a master at saying very poignantly and quickly uh, those things which needed to be said. And so we're grateful for that, but... Uh, we're, we're taking a little time on this, and uh, do you remember where he is when he preaches this message? A mountainside? Okay, good. On the mount, on the mountainside. And uh, who's he talking to? Disciples. And where where is the mountainside? In Galilee, okay? So way up north where Jesus did most of his ministry. Um and uh, who is he specifically talking to in this passage? The, the disciples, okay? And then who's listening in? <laughs> Lots of other people. The crowds, multitudes, people other, other than the disciples. But Jesus is speaking primarily to the disciples. And he's describing a certain kind of person, a certain kind of life that's blessed. And the interesting thing about verse 9 here is that verse 9 has to do with, is, it's the one that's closestly, most closely tied to, tied to the identity of the believer. Okay, He says, what does he say there? Blessed are the peacemakers for what? shall be called the sons of God. So this is closely tied to our identity as the children of God. And so we want to take uh, just a moment to look at this. Let's have a word of prayer and, and just ask for the Lord to speak to us in this. There's a lot of scripture to cover tonight, and we want to make sure we do this thoroughly, but, but also in a way that uh, would, uh, would be clear. Father, we need your help tonight as we look at these words. We pray, Lord, that you would bring out the clarity of what's here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the Beatitudes. So, blessed are the peacemaker. What's meant by a peacemaker? What are what are some of the meanings of the word peace, just generally? Without conflict, 
Okay. Continuity. Okay, what else? Calmness. A sweet quietness. Okay. What about uh, the Hebrew concept behind peace? Anybody remember? What's the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. And what does that what does that entail? Perfect peace. Wholeness. It's like it's more than just absence of conflict. It involves that, but even more than that, it's well being. And so when you wish somebody peace, you're wishing them you're wishing them well being. Okay, but in, in this particular context, I think Jesus has something very particular in mind. This is from Loanitas, Greek lexicon of the New Testament. Um and I, I'm not going to try to pronounce this, although I should be able to. Uh, but look how many syllables there are in this in this word. It's a person who restores peace between people, peacemaker, uh, one who works for peace, with the emphasis on peace between persons rather than one who causes wars to cease. Who is it that ultimately will call it, cause wars to cease? Jesus will, right? That's the Sunday school answer. Jesus is going to cause the wars to cease, but... On a, a scale of, of that magnitude, that takes a particular kind of figure. And, of course, uh, a lot of times we may have trouble with the person that's right in front of us, right? That's our, that's our avenue of peacemaking is who is it that we know, who's within our circle, where can we bring peace? And, and of course, responsibilities can go out beyond that. But the, the call for peace is to have peace with persons, to be peacemakers. And if you're a parent... Of course, one of the things you want is peace within your home. Uh, and I'm not, I've not been a parent, but I've been a child who's fought with siblings. And uh, I know how frustrating that must have been for my parents to try to, to bring peace uh, between warring siblings. And so here, when he talks about peacemaker, he uses the word peace, but it's a, it's a, um, a compound word. And the second part of the word is the word we get poem from. It's the word that we get works from. Like uh, when it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 9 and 10, 8, 9 and 10, it talks about the works which he created beforehand for us to do. Uh, you are God's workmanship, it uses this this word. So this is a compound of these two words. And so it could be that you could be called, and this sounds a little weird, maybe even a little political, and it's not meant to, but you, you could be a peace worker. Okay, that's God's call for us, is to be those who bring peace into situations. And usually it's between one person and another. One other uh, dictionary on this says, one who endeavors to reconcile persons who've been, uh, who have disagreement. So... That, of course, could be me and you. That could be uh, you and somebody else. So there is a, a place for reconciliation between other people where an intermediary comes in and says, I will stand between and cause reconciliation to happen in this relationship. Who do we know that's done that? Anybody? Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? Right? Uh, we have one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. What makes him qualified to do that? What is it? Sinless? Okay. I'm talking about something regarding his nature that uniquely qualifies Jesus. Okay? He's the Prince of Peace. He's an advocate. Let's think about his nature. Okay, he's perfect. Is he God? Yeah, 
Is he man? Yeah. Do you, you see where I'm going with this? He, he's a reconciler because he can represent fully both sides. Being fully God and fully man, he's the perfect representative for reconciliation. Do you see that? And so that's why we can count on him. Uh, to me, I, I hope it is to you. Maybe you're just not showing it. But to me, that's, that's spectacular. And if we think about it, that's what uniquely qualifies Jesus to stand between us as the reconciler. He's the intermediary between God and man as, uh, as himself, fully God, fully man. All right. Well, um, I think peace here must mean harmony in relationships. In other places, it has to do with well-being. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that here, but the well-being would be well-being within relationships if we bring that meaning over. And so that's the most natural thing to take this. One thing I'm afraid of with this passage is that sometimes we come with the Bible and we get, we get over literal and we let verses war against each other. Can you think of a verse that relates to uh, Jesus and peace that would suggest something other than this? He didn't come to bring peace, but what? Yeah. And he, he used a symbol. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And that sword is going to split in half, if we're just to paraphrase, families between those who follow him and those who don't. And so we can sometimes see that and think, well, Jesus didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. And so why are we called to be peacemakers? And uh, I wanted to talk about this for a few moments because I think it has some bearing on how we understand this verse. So in one sense, Jesus said he did not come to bring peace. And on another sense, he did come to bring peace. We understand that there are places where um, it, t- it says of Jesus uh, that there would be a sword and that he would be the cause of the rise and the fall of many in Israel. And so there was division that took place there. Um, but when it says that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, we have to ask the question, is that, was that Jesus's intention? What's his primary means for, or primary purpose of coming? Was it to divide people? Is that primary? What is, what's primary? What is it? What? Yes, Sorry. <laughs> what, what is the primary purpose of Jesus' coming? Sorry, I should have been more clear on that. Why did Jesus come? So he can save the lost. So any division that's caused by this is going to be a secondary thing. And I would suggest to you that this isn't his purpose to cause division. His purpose is to save, and as a side effect of that salvation, there would be natural division that would happen within families between those who chose him and those who didn't, both Jewish families and Gentile families. I don't know if you thought about this, but within the Jewish family, there would have been some who would have rejected Jesus as Messiah, and there would have been others that may have accepted him as Messiah. That would have caused problems. If you're a child and your father rejects Jesus and you choose to follow him, there's a problem. Okay? And then here's the other side of that. What if you're the parent and your child has not chosen to follow Jesus? There's division. Now, you know your, your desire as a parent is not for that to happen. You, you know that what Christ ultimately wants to do is to save that child and bring the family into some kind of harmony surrounding him. 
So it's not Jesus's intention to cause division. It's a side effect of what his true purpose is, which is to save. And because we still have free will, some will choose him, some won't. And so there will be division. Sometimes uh, within a Jewish way of speaking, a, a Hebrew idiom, if you will, um, they'll, they'll say things that will have almost the purpose sound to it, but it's not meant to be the purpose. It's meant to be a side effect. Let me let you hear from some other Bible scholars on this. Robert Mount says, Jesus' statement that he came to bring strife is a normal Semitic use of consequence as though they were intentions. So he's saying here that it sounds as if it's an intention, but he's saying that really this is a consequence of his coming. Hagner says in his commentary, although I came to divide, uh, is Jesus' statement, would ordinarily be taken in a sense of purpose. Here it is more a way of describing the effect of the coming of Jesus and the proclamation of the kingdom. And so it's important to understand that Jesus did not want for there to be division within families. So when he's encouraging us to be peacemakers, and it would appear on the surface that he's not being a peacemaker, we might find there a contradiction. But what Jesus' true intention is, is to be the prince of peace and to bring peace to every heart. But not everyone will allow him to do that. And you can see this in his cry uh, as he, uh, he, I think this is when he's walking up the the steps into Jerusalem for the, the final week of his life. Um, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this is Luke chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, you kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you're not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again till he say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so he's recognizing that these things are not as they're supposed to be. And there will be strife within that city because they've rejected their Messiah. Just as there's strife within homes where some have chosen him and some haven't. And in case you think the easy way is just everybody go away from Christ. There's strife in homes where nobody's serving Jesus. So you can't really escape it. There's true peace when we're following Christ from all of our hearts. So when he said, I did not come to bring peace, it sounds like a purpose statement. And instead, we ought to understand this point uh, as some kind of information that will come as a result of his coming. Did he come to bring peace? Yes, he came to bring peace, but not everyone will have it. And so uh, as a result, not everyone will know that peace and there will be strife within homes. Now, you need to know that if this is related to us being children of God, we ought to see this in the behavior of God. Has God ever gone out of his way to establish peace? Yes? I'm going to assume the answer is yes. When? Has he done it? In the coming of Jesus, right? How about uh, second? Corinthians chapter 5, when it says there of him in verse 18 through 21, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was in, in the, was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he was, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what he's telling us there is that God has gone out of his way, even taking the punishment for our sins upon himself in Christ so that we can be reconciled and have peace. What's the cost of peace? There needs to be a price paid, right? And Jesus has paid that price for us, and now we bear the message of reconciliation. Um, And we can see some examples of that. It says, we will be called, those who are peacemakers will be called children of God. Peacemaker here, first of all, and I think this is the intention of Jesus, is that we bring peace, we restore peace between people. So as Christians, we're not out there looking for strife. We're looking to bring reconciliation the same way God brought reconciliation. And so we can see the kindred nature of our relationship to God as peacemakers, is that God is a peacemaker, and therefore we as his children are peacemakers. Okay, That's how it ought to be. Is it always that way, if we're honest? No, it's not. And uh, sometimes uh, there are reasons that we have for not allowing there to be peace within relationships. So to be clear, it says here, um, blessed are the peacemakers for what? They shall be, what? What's the verb there? Called? Made? No, called. Children of God. Why is that important? Well, one reason is, is because you don't become a Christian, you don't become God's child through peacemaking, not yours. Are you with me? Does that make sense? We become children of God because of God's peacemaking. That's been accomplished for us. Okay? But now, as a response to what God has done, we become peacemakers. And so he shows us that this is the true nature of those who are God's children. So uh, generally, it means that this is an indicator of being in God's family that we have a desire for peace. Who's going to call? Um, who's going to call peacemakers children of God? Who do you think? Because it says they will be called, but but by who? Who's going to call them the children of God? Uh, unsaved, okay. And and who else might? Other believers might, okay. Who else might? Did you say the Lord? Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. We've seen through this passage what's uh, known as the divine passive, where it says an action is going to happen, but it doesn't tell us who's performing the action, and that's that's known. Um, in biblical studies as the divine passive, where God is doing the action, but as a way of kind of circumventing and stepping away and not saying the divine name too much, that it just says this will happen, and it's passively pushed as if God's the one doing the action here. So here, I'm going to submit to you that, yes, I think it's true the world will call them children of God, and I think there's good reasons for understanding that, uh, because when they see our true peace, it's not something that naturally is done. And I think believers will recognize that other people are children of God by their peacemaking. But I think ultimately what's in in mind here is that Jesus is saying you have the divine endorsement upon your life because you're a peacemaker. God will call you his children. You're like me. I don't know about you, but I've noticed as I've got older, my parents were a little older when they had me. 
uh, just a little bit younger than I am now. And so I'm starting to recognize as I look in the mirror and I hear my own cough or whatever, that sounds and looks like my dad. It's kind of scary, isn't it? When you start to look like your parents, you're like, that would get me someday. Sometimes that's not always bad. You know what I mean? Sometimes that's really a good thing. When you look like your parent, and when your parent is God himself, then uh, that's a good thing to be like him. So I wanted to bring this out by showing you, if I, if I have it here, a comparison. It's important when you're reading Bible translation, this is a side note, always pay close attention to exactly how the Bible translation is titled. Because there are some, these are very carefully worded because there's not a whole bunch of different phrases you can use for Bible translations. You know what I mean? Like, there's a new, Eng- just for an example, there's a new English Bible that came out in the 60s. It's a British translation. There's also a new English translation. And those two are completely different. And so when you're using them, pay careful attention to the title. New English Bible is a British translation. And it's really fun to read because they translate some things a little bit different. Uh, but they're trying to do it from and be faithful to Scripture. And then later on, I don't know exactly when this happened, but I think it was sometime in the 80s maybe that they came out with a revised English Bible. So this is a revision of that. Both are British translations. But I'd like you to notice the differences. Okay? So look with me, if you will. How blessed are the peacemakers. God shall call them his sons. Okay? And if you're bothered by the fact that it says sons there, the actual Greek word is, is huios, which is sons. But uh, huios, they always use the masculine form to identify not just masculine, but masculine and feminine. So, um, and there's been big controversy over this, and I think some of it's really unnecessary because sometimes the masculine is used to describe, like, mankind. That's a masculine word, right? But it describes all of us, Okay. So, if we're being very literal, yes, sons, but children's also appropriate, okay? So, notice this one, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called God's children. What's the difference here? I'd ask you to consider, take a moment and look at this. Who, who's doing the calling, right? We, we talked about this just a moment ago. What this does, I think this one's right, but this one more faithfully follows word for word what the Greek says. Okay, so I think this is the intention because it, it draws out the divine passive right into the text. It says God's the one doing the calling. This one doesn't do it. It kind of leaves it obscure. But sometimes the Bible does that. If we want to be true to form, it's this one. If we want to understand function, it's that one. So they're both right. It's just a matter of how you want to approach this. What's that? Well, I think you could say interpretation, but I think it's not so hard and fast as that. Like, interpretation would imply that somebody's putting their own spin on it. Um, I don't know that that's what's happening here. I think what they're trying to do is make plain the words. They're trying to make plain the intention. Do you, you see the difference? Okay. So, these guys, when they're translating, may know it means that, but they're going to say, no, we're going to stick more, more close to the Greek text and we'll hope that people come to that conclusion on their own. Okay, so that's the difference. But I just wanted to bring this up because it, it's, it's showing us that there's a question about who is it that's calling us sons or daughters of God? 
And I think the point is that it's God himself which is doing that very thing. So, um, okay, so it's, it's God himself who's doing that. Let's, let's see here. So he says in Scripture something about how love is going to show who we're related to. Do you remember anything like that, Jesus in the upper room? What does he say? It's by your love that, what? That all, all men will know you're my disciples, right? Out of your love for one another. That there's something charmed about that that indicates who we are in God. The love and the peacemaking among Christians should be our most identifiable charm. But many times this is threatened, and the apostles in the New Testament, they set out to correct it. So I want to deal with the other side of this, because there is another side. We're called to be peacemakers. Do we always live at peace? I said in Sunday, I don't know if it was this Sunday or last Sunday, but that Pentecostals who are spirit-filled can sometimes be the meanest Christians. And I've grown up around that, and that's how I would identify, so I'm not... I'm not speaking about somebody else. I'm telling from experience that it can be mean sometimes, and there's a conflict that can happen. And the question is, how can that be? How can it be that we um, would not be peacemaking and peace-loving people? So Paul deals with this in a few passages, and, and James as well. And I was thinking here of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Do you remember the passage there that talks about going to court with loved one or with uh, fellow brothers in Christ? Okay. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. And Paul uh, writes to them, and uh, he says, it's to your shame that this is happening. So I don't know what the conflict was about, but you've, you have this thing addressed where some Christians within the Corinthian church weren't able to get along, and they were in such uh, disagreement that they were taking their problem to the local magistrate to figure out the differences between them. So it'd be like some a couple people in this room having such grievances with each other that they're suing each other. Okay, that's what this is talking about. And so Paul addresses this a little bit, and he says, first of all, he says, uh, why is it that you can't get along? Why can't you get along? And then he says, uh, he shames them, not only that they can't get along, but he shames them that when they can't get along, they can't find wisdom within the church. Do you remember he says, is there not somebody wise among you that can settle this? Why do you have to take it outside the church? That's to your shame. Don't you know you'll be judging angels and you can't even judge each other? Something wrong with that. Then uh, he says, he judges them, or excuse me, he shames them that they drag their struggles out before the world to see. Okay, It's not as if we need to hide our problems. It's not that. It's that they shouldn't have let it uh, escalate to this in the first place. Okay, And now he's shaming them because now you've brought your problems out into the court for all the world to see that... Christianity hasn't taken effect in your heart deep enough for you to get along. So it's a shame to the world. Okay? And then he shames them one step further, and he says they insist on their rights, even if it brings reproach on the name of Christ. He says it this way, shouldn't you have allowed yourself rather to be defrauded? Like, wouldn't it be better for you to have just taken the hit than to drag 
your rights into court and show the whole world that you can't, as Christians can't get along. It's tragic. And so he's addressing that when all, all the while in the back of his mind, at least in the back of my mind and maybe in the back of his mind and hopefully yours, is that Christ has called us to be peacemakers. And these guys are going to court and suing each other. What's the problem here? They're not being peacemakers like God's called them to. They're not acting like children of God. And uh, what is the the cause of all of these divisions? I'd like you to notice a few verses. I'm going to show you a slide in just a moment, some of the troubles that, that come when there is divisive spirit within us or within our church. Titus chapter 3, verse 10 through 11 says, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. And so he, Paul, is telling Titus as a pastor, he says, Warn those people who are divisive, who are not peacemakers, and warn them a second time, and then send them out. Romans chapter 16, verse 17 and 18, urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. 1 Corinthians three seventeen. if anyone destroys, and if you know the context there, we've, <laughs> we've often <laughs> taken this as... Um, the temple of God meaning us. And I've heard some strange interpretations like you shouldn't do these certain behaviors because it destroys your body. And if you destroy the temple of God, God will destroy you. It's not talking about that. Are you with me? It's talking about the collective. When we destroy the body of Christ, then God will destroy us. It says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you, and this is our problem, is that we don't have uh, a distinct plural pronoun for you in English. We say you if it's just one, and we say you if it's all of us. And so oftentimes we mistake that. But here, the NIV is making this clear. You together are God's temple. So he's saying if you destroy the unity of the body, God will destroy you. Are you hearing that? So God wants us to be peacemakers and not not, uh, divisive. And so there's a problem with not being peacemakers. I'm going to skip through some of this, but I want to take us to a few things here that have to do with the opposite of peacemaking. And uh, the first first one is is this Greek word, if it matters to you. And it means discord, dissension, arguments, and rivalry or strife is the way that it could be translated. And this has to do with conflict resulting from rivalries where one person is jockeying against another person to be important and different discords, engaging in rivalry like it's me versus him. And here's how it often happens where peacemaking has been set aside is that I feel like I'm right or more important than that person. And so I'm going to go find as many people as I can and get them on my side. And then you get this these factions or this party spirit that develops within churches around personalities. And that's destructive to the body of Christ. If we ever put our ego above the name of Jesus, we're in trouble. And we will find ourselves divided. That's a, the first one. The second one is this. Um, Zetasis means arguments, controversies, and disputes. 
And uh, these have to do with matters for dispute, controversial questions, engagement in controversial discussion, like not not hard-founded truth, but controversial kind of stuff, like like edge kind of stuff, um, peripheral issues, where we let those kinds of things divide us. He's, uh, the Word of God's against that. This is to express forceful differences of opinion without necessarily having a presumed goal of seeking a solution. So we're just standing on this is what I think is right versus that's what you think is right, and there's no uh, reconciliation that can happen there. This next one, you might recognize this. It's found way into some of our Western languages. I think of uh, the German war machine, the Wehrmacht, right? That's that's where this comes from, is this Greek word, make, and it means contentions, quarrelings, infightings, and it has to do with battle. One fighter on each side is enough. You don't have to you don't have to think in terms of lots of people. This battle can be one person against another person, and so there's a discord or a, uh, a quarrel or an infighting that takes place, um, and it's fought without actual weapons. The weapons are words. Okay, and then this one's related to it. Anybody want to guess what that's about? What's what's logos mean? Anybody know? It's word. Okay, and then the second part we've already seen. It's a war of words. So God looks down upon that. Quarrels about words, verbal disputes. First Timothy chapter six verse four, Titus three nine. It's talking about uh, fighting over words, the meanings of words. Words are important, and I, I think we should understand that words are important, but we need to be careful about letting peripheral, non-essential arguments over these things drive a wedge between us. You understand what I mean? Okay, wars of words, and then we have uh, another word here, which I'm not going to try to pronounce. This is constant friction. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 5 that which is characterized by constant argumentativeness and is therefore therefore irritating. That's right in the dictionary, is therefore irritating. Yes, it's irritating when, when somebody is constantly argumentative. This is to engage in contentious or repeated arguing. Like, we're not really trying to settle a problem. Sometimes people just like to argue. I want to tell you a secret. Okay, don't use it against me. Promise me you won't. The longer I serve in ministry, the less I like to argue. I have no stomach for it anymore. The last thing here is uh, causing division in Jude chapter 9. That's Jude, not Judges, uh, chapter 19, or verse 19, excuse me. And this is uh, to cause or instigate divisions between people, to mark off by dividing or separating uh, hence the metaphor to divide. And so uh, these are different w- things that are opposite of peacemaking. Okay? Peacemaking is an activity that we should engage in where we're trying, to, we're trying to cross boundaries. And do you know that even if we all agree on 99% of our doctrine, of our politics even, if that were possible, of every, just put all things controversial in it. If we agreed on all of it, do you know what the devil's going to try to do? He's going to bring up that 1% and make it the biggest issue. And you know the people that we have the hardest struggle with is people that we agree mostly with, 
but there's that one thing. Like, we can get along with people that have far different views, but it's that person that's right up next to us that has just this small divergent view would be our worst enemy. So we have problems in those particular areas, and I uh, would encourage us to watch these as opposite of peacemaking. If our heart is convicted as we see these words, we have to repent before God and say, Lord, I don't want to be... I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a war maker. I want to be a peacemaker. And so uh, it's fitting that these things should occur among those who are... It's a question, actually. Is it fitting that these things should occur among those who are called to be peacemakers? Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, there are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable. It's a little figure of speech that's sometimes used. Uh, Three, even four, six, even seven. Um, and, and so it's a way of emphasizing. Notice uh, in this one, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And I've left out the other six that are not relevant to our topic and pointed to number seven, a person who stirs up commu- uh, conflict in the community. What is it that the Lord detests? If we're to take this literally, he hates the six things, he detests the seventh. Know that that's how it's meant, but let's just suppose that for a moment. Person who stirs up conflict in the community, God detests that. There are proper times for uh, us to lay out issues and discuss them, even even to make a case for those things. It's never the intention uh, in God's heart for us to be divided or to to strive against one another. We're always supposed to be striving together for truth. The peacemaker is the lover of peace, okay? So why is it that some people love strife? Well, I've searched the scriptures, and I've found five things that I think relate to this, and you can see it in some different areas, and for lack of time, we won't look at all the verses, but uh, the first one is a person is conceited to think that they're right about everything, and so they, they love to argue to prove they're right. That's one. Okay? This is one reason why people... Uh, find strife is they love to argue. Okay, I know people. There's people in my family. They like to argue. It's more playful with them. They're not really trying to drive a wedge. They like to do it for fun. I don't like to do that. And you know what? Even more, I don't think God likes to do that. He doesn't like us to be argumentative. Okay, But this is a person who's conceited. They think they're right about everything. Okay, And they love to argue. A second reason is... Uh, that some people have a con- uh, corrupt fascination with controversy or drama. Have you met people? They love drama. Not only do they love it on TV, they love to bring it into their situation. Everywhere they go, there's a stir around them. They cause drama. They create drama. They love to get into the middle of it and uh, create the mess and then back off and watch it all unfold. Okay? And you probably know people like that. And that's, that shows that there's this corrupt fascination. They love the drama more than they love the unity. Third, some people are captivated by evil. And it talks about those who, whose minds have been captivated by the evil one. I don't mean necessarily that they are in bondage to the enemy. They may be. Some who are like this are outside the faith. But I think some have given themselves to be captivated by him. They've let him put the chains on them. They've let him take them down that road. But they're captivated 
by the evil one who loves to divide. If you've ever read uh, Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, he talks about the, uh, the one tempter is trying to get his subject or his patient to fight with his mother. And so this is one of the ways that the demons are conspiring to tear this man's faith down. C.S. Lewis is writing this as a, a devotional book to show some of the enemy's tactics. And he does it masterfully. He says, uh, count on daily pinpricks. Those are those little things that they don't hurt a lot, but they hurt a little bit to where they accumulate. And let them build up to a breaking point. And that's the point that he's trying to make is that there is is a way that the enemy likes to break down relationships and to take us away from real peacemaking. Number four is some are controlled by their desires. And James talks about this. If we had time, I would take you there. But if you remember, uh, James talks about in chapter 3 about uh, wisdom that comes from above and wisdom that comes from below. He talks about wisdom coming from above, that one of its characteristics is it's peace-loving. Okay? And then when he talks about the, the wisdom that comes from below, that it's fleshly, it's earthly, it's devilish, it's demonic. And he says these kinds of things. And then you, you know that uh, the chapter divisions in the Bible were not written in the Bible at the beginning? Did you know that? So when you're reading through your Bible and you go, okay, I'm done here with chapter 3, and I'll wait till tomorrow to read chapter 4, you may actually be interrupting a thought that was intended to carry on. Chapter 3 and 4 of James is a good example of that because it goes right into what causes fights and quarrels among you. It's, is it not the desires that battle within you, you want, you cannot get, and you strive, you cannot, you kill for it? And you don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives. Consume it on your own lust. And then he says, um, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enemy, enmity with God? And then he says, you ought to submit to God and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinner. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Weep, wail, and mourn. And he goes on talking about how we ought to come into the right mindset. But He's saying previous to this is that one of the things that's causing these this lack of peacemaking is that we're believing a wisdom, not that comes from above, but it comes from below, and we're acting upon our own desires rather than upon what matters to God. And so I would suggest to you that one of the things that has to happen for true peacemakers is that we have to subjugate our desires to God's desire. Our desire is to be the smartest, and so my arguments are always right, and I'm always going to know the right answers to all of these things, and yours are always lesser than, okay, because that boosts me. God's desires is, I don't care, you're both wrong in a lot of ways, right? If we're honest about it, nobody has the perfect doctrine except God, and we're all striving for that, but we're all wrong to a greater or lesser degree, and we're just like, Two small horses jockeying in a small race. It's really what it is. So we've got to come to terms with that. There's a, uh, we're controlled by evil desires. The fifth one is that some people are crusading for their pet cause. There's a pet cause that we have that we're, we're fighting for. And I think the Bible would generally describe these things, these five things, as being carnally minded or thinking if carnally minded doesn't 
uh, open up things for you. It's thinking from a worldly or a fleshly perspective rather than from the perspective given to us from heaven. That's what God wants us to do is think from that way, but we often don't. And some never make peace with others because they've never found peace with God. Okay, you know, if we've, you know, the, the wounded dog wounds other people, right? If you've, if you've mistreated a dog, they're going to bite people. And the same way with us, because we've never made peace with God, we've got that turmoil within us, and it creates turmoil without. When we make peace with God, it becomes more natural to live at peace with other people. So how does this all play out? We've got a few minutes here. Let's take a look at another passage that will bring this into light. Romans chapter 12. I don't know if you've thought about this before. I hope you have, because once you see the key to all of this in Romans 12, it unlocks a lot of how this plays out. Romans 12. Look with me at verse 1. Therefore, what do we do when we see therefore in the Bible? We ask what it's there for, right? Why is it there? Well, in this case, unfortunately for us, you have to think of all of Romans 1 through 11, okay? So it'd be easy if we could go back to one sentence prior to that or two sentences. But no, in this case, this is the transition period that Paul has in his letters from doctrine to practice, and this is the place that that lies. And so having laid out salvation's plan and how God has won our peace through Christ, he says, therefore, look at what it says here, I urge you, uh, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that's everything that's been said in Romans so far, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. What was the problem with the reasoning before? It was carnally minded, right? Carnally minded. Don't be conformed to the patterns of thinking in this world, but be transformed by what? Renewing your mind. It takes a new mind to be a peacemaker. We have to have a renewed mind to be a peacemaker. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What is Paul talking about here? Because sometimes when I've heard this preached, people have extracted Romans 12.1 from the rest of Romans 12. And they've said, wonderful, we need to offer our bodies as living sacrifice. And they've given us all kinds of applications for that. And they're all good, but they're not Paul's main point. What is Paul's main point in chapter 12? Look with me. Look at verse 3. Don't think of yourselves too highly. Verse 9, love sincerely. Verse 10, honor one another above yourselves. Verse 13, share with those in need. Verse 14, bless those who persecute. Verse 15, share joys and sufferings. Verse 16, live in harmony. Verse 16 again, don't be too good for other people. Verse 17, don't retaliate offenses. Verse 17, do what's right in the eyes of everyone. Verse 18, do your part to live at peace with everyone as much as it depends upon you. Verse 19, don't take revenge. Verse 20, do good to those who mistreat you. And here's the point that I would make from this, and you can read, I I skipped over some verses there, verses uh, 4 through 8, but all of those are relating to the same thing. It's functioning within a community. That's why he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Because if it's going to work, it's going to be because we've crucified our flesh and the fleshly mind. And it's because we've we've placed ourselves on the altar. 
And we said, this life is not mine anymore. It's a living sacrifice to God. Let me tell you why living sacrifice is harder than a dying sacrifice. A dying sacrifice is a one-time offering. A living sacrifice is day after day after day of living for God. That's not easy. That carcass wants to crawl off the altar and back into the world. And it's our job. Paul says it this way, I die daily. I beat my body and I make it my slave. It's a, it's a daily death that we have to live where we say, Luke doesn't live here anymore. Paul says, I don't live here anymore. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but not I, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, yes, I'm living and breathing and saying things and eating food and going to work and uh, being a part of my family and enjoying life, but it's not my life anymore. It's God's life lived through me. This is a whole new way of living the Christian life, and it's not really new. It's just that it needs to be rediscovered. That If we're going to be the kind of people who are peacemakers, it's going to demand that we allow ourselves, we put ourselves on the altar. Because if you can think of all of these, all these require us to put ourselves aside. And, and I would encourage you to read chapter 12 of Romans and see if that first part doesn't play into everything else that's asked. When somebody hurts you, what's the fleshly response to that? Hurt back, retaliation, revenge. Um, and what does putting ourselves on the altar help us to do? Treat them like we want to be treated. Show them grace. You can't hurt a dead man, right? It's already He's already on the altar. We, we leave that person there. And so I, I'm telling you something that is easy to explain. It's hard to live. Because it requires us every day remembering that we are dead to ourselves and alive to him. See, we've abstracted that verse, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. It's great. And then we've applied it to other things. But what about relationships where the rubber meets the road, where it's hard, where people have mistreated us, or it requires us to sympathize with other people? Think about this. When we're feeling something, if we're happy and somebody else is sad, we don't want to go and be sad with them. We want them to be happy with us or stay away. Right? Come on, let's be honest. But what does it say? Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. It means offering our bodies means laying aside how I feel to enter into how you feel. If you're having a hard time... I enter into that. I empathize with it. I sympathize with it. I share passions. That's what sympathy means. We, we share emotion. If you're sad, I'm sad for you. That takes a little death on our part. That my feelings at the moment are not important. How do you feel? See, see how it would be really hard for me to go on living my life and living like that? It's got to be one or the other. It's a, a question of who will serve. Let's Go on. I want to mention some practical peacemaking from F.W. Borum. If you haven't read any of his stuff, he's a man of his age, so he says things like they say it in his age. But I will tell you, and that, and that was, I think, the 1890s, early 1900s. 
But if you want a really good book on the Beatitudes, the Heavenly Octave is a really good one. It's short. And he uses some really flowery language. I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but you'll leave there feeling blessed. You read it. F.W. Borum, spelled like Bortide, and then H-A-M, Borham. All right. He's he's Englishman who pastored a Baptist church in Australia for many years, and he writes these essays that are awesome. He says these three things will help us to be peacemakers. Number one, are you ready for this? It's going to be so profound, you're going to wonder how you've never lived before. Avoid giving offense. Okay, avoid giving offense. Do all that you can to avoid giving offense. Now, I want to qualify that by saying that doesn't mean we water down the gospel. The gospel at times causes offense. But don't let the offense be you. Are you with me? That's different. Yes, that's true. But in that case, we'll come to another one. I'm talking about doing everything we can. And part of this is going to come from trying to speak to a person the way that they need to hear it. Okay? Sometimes we'll say, well, it doesn't matter, like kind of a John Wayne approach, like I can't help how you hear it, I can only help how I say it. Right? And that's kind of a John Wayne, American bravado type way. But when it comes to the gospel, I think there's times that we need to recognize our audience and say it how we know they'll take it. You know what I mean? This is, this is love. This is going the extra mile. We could just say it and say, you need to understand how I'm saying it. What if we went the extra mile and said, I want to say it in a way that you'll understand and making sure that it's understood. You have to put thought into it. You have to sympathize with people. You have to empathize and get into their lives a little bit. This is part of when it says in Scripture that we're to treat others the way we'd want to be treated. We have to use this divine gift that God gave us called imagination to put ourselves in their shoes and hear it in the way that they would hear it. Okay, That's part of part of uh, not giving offense. There's another part of this, and this is the second one, is that he says, avoid taking offenses. Hey, isn't that profound? You want to be a peacemaker? Avoid giving offense. Two, avoid taking offense. That means that we need to be, (laughs) we need to be, have tough skin and a sensitive heart, okay? Because sometimes people will attempt to offend us, Sometimes offenses can happen accidentally, as it, as it was mentioned, you know, that where people have said something. Here's a, a good rule to live by for the church. Always try to put the best spin on what people say to you. And another way to say that is always believe the best of every person. If you don't have a good reason to believe the worst, always believe the best of them. Even if you have a suspicion, it might not be what they really meant. Why not take the best spin on it and treat them lovingly anyway? Be unoffendable. If, that, if you can, be unoffendable. If you can't, take your offense to the Lord and deal with it there first. That's good. Okay. Number three, sometimes these two, there's still fish that get through. You know? And this is the third one, reconciliation. You see, avoiding giving offense is the easiest form of peacemaking. The second easiest form of peacemaking is avoid taking offense. And the third is more difficult. That's to, it's to reconcile when offense has been given. Offense may have come, 
but we can forgive the offender. We have to make the attempt to, to forgive them. And, and sometimes reconciliation is not between us and another person. Think about the scenarios where this could play out. One is, I may have offended you, and there needs to be reconciliation. Number two, you may have offended me, and there needs to be reconciliation. Number three, there are two other people that we know of that are within a community that matters to us, and they are offended with each other, and you need to reconcile that because there's a place for that, too, to be a mediator. God's done that. Jesus did that as the reconciling party between God and man. And so we have to try our best. Remember what it says in Romans uh, 12. As much as it depends upon you, live at peace with everybody. Do you know what that means? That means sometimes it won't work because it doesn't all depend upon you. If there's two parties, you only get to play one part of that. You can't always reconcile. But the Bible says you have to do your part regardless of what the other person does. As much as it depends upon you, go that far and reach out to them. And this is the life that's truly blessed. i got to hurry here, but Borum says, Have I broken peace with someone? I must go at once. And then I would receive the blessedness. I must go at once and reconcile that and crave his forgiveness. Am I conscious of having been injured or offended? Listen to this. Because I've heard people say, if you're a Christian, you don't have to forgive them unless they ask for forgiveness. I challenge that. I think we do have to forgive, even if they don't ask for forgiveness. If not for anything else, for your own sake. Okay? So he says, have I been uh, offended by somebody? Then I, have to, I should go to them and tell them how deeply I regret the breach and clasp his familiar hand once more, whether I succeed or fail, restoring peace. Nevertheless, I will be a peacemaker. Because the peacemaker attempts to have peace. If I've tried, then I have the greater peace, whether the relationship's been restored or not, because I've sought peace and pursued it. Psalm 34, 14, and 1 Peter 3, 11. There's a whole list of peacekeeping things in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3 that would be nice to talk about. We have, we have no time. Uh, we might think we would leave ourselves vulnerable if we become peacemakers like Jesus has insisted here, that we would become vulnerable, that somebody's going to take advantage of us. Okay, if that happens, for how long? Is it not just for this life? Can injustices carry over into the next? Or will all things be set right? Okay. I, and I would suggest to you, God's got you covered. That's the end of Romans. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed them. And then it says at the very end of that, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So we do the good, and we leave the rest by trust in God's hands that he will set all things right. So let's make it our desire first then, and, uh, and then our pursuit to live at peace with people, to not have the depraved heart that loves drama and loves being argumentative and fighting and likes to see people at odds with one another. Now let's be the kind of people who love peace and pursue it. If an offense has occurred, confess it and ask them to forgive and let the relationship be restored. If somebody else offended you, from your side, commit it to God and know that he's covered it on the cross, that they might be forgiven. It doesn't mean that we have to be chummy with everybody. 
Do you understand what I mean by that? In some cases, people have offended us, and there's good reason out of responsibility, not out of hatred or resentment, but out of responsibility to keep a distance. Can you think of a situation where that might be the case? But that shouldn't, that shouldn't stop us from wanting God's best for them. That's the goal of love. And so let's lay ourselves on the altar in order to do this, that we might be the kind of peacekeep, kind of peacekeepers that God uh, can call his children. And let's take ourselves out of the way. If the gospel is conf- uh, conf- confrontational, let it be. But let's not be the reason why there can't be peace with others. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's... Yeah, he wasn't fighting against individuals so much as an establishment. I think that there are times when he said things that caused people to go away, but it was always his desire for them to be reconciled to him, for them to turn to him. It's never his desire that any should die in their sins, but that all should come to repentance. So, I mean, that, isn't that true? That all should be restored to peace. And so you can see in Scripture that he at times upset things momentarily in order for there to be a greater peace in the long run. So, okay, great. And that's a good point. As I should have mentioned that. That's, that's a good point, that even when the Bible calls us at times to turn people over, it talks about turning people over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh and turning people out of the church. You know, it's not out of hatred or resentment that that should happen. It's always for this awareness that, oh, I'm away from God, and I need to repent. And then, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 5, he says uh, of the immoral man, you should have cast him out of the church, turned him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And then in Second uh, Corinthians chapter two, I think it is. He says you need to restore the brother who's repentant, and watch yourself because Satan is wandering around. He says, and we're not ignorant of his devices. We know how he works. He loves to work in those areas of unforgiveness. And so, this is this is not an easy topic because there are a lot of qualifiers that could go along with it. But the theme of this is that the heart's desire ought to be. As peacemakers, and that we ought to do everything that we can to be peacemakers. We don't compromise the truth, but we have to do everything that we can within the truth to live reconciled to people as much as we can. Okay? All right. Thank you for uh, your gracious attention tonight. Let's stand. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you uh, for these words. May they protect us individually in our relationships. May we always seek the well-being of others, even Lord, at cost to ourselves. That's what you did. And I'm praying, Lord, that you would help us as a church to exemplify a peace-loving heart, that we might long for reconciliation and for there to be the unity of the Spirit. We pray that you build that among us in such a way that the enemy uh, has no place here to, to split or um, destroy or to tear apart relationships, but that we might grow closer together and closer to you, we pray. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Thank you, Lord. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.